Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very honored and pleased to have with us today Rabbi Jacob J. Schachter. Rabbi Schachter received his rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva Torah Vidas and earned a PhD from the Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations Department at Harvard University. Rabbi Schachter served as the first rabbi of the young Israel of Sharon, Massachusetts, and subsequently as rabbi at the Jewish Center in Manhattan. From the year 2000 until 2005, Rabbi Schachter was the dean of the Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik Institute in Brookline, and afterwards became senior scholar and university professor at Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future. Rabbi Schachter is a popular and highly regarded writer, lecturer, and educator, and today we're going to take Rabbi Schachter all the way back to his Harvard days and discuss his groundbreaking, authoritative doctoral thesis written on the life and writings of Rabbi Jacob Emden, and this is the thesis acceptance document that we downloaded and urge all of our readers and listeners to download uh, Rabbi Schachter's doctoral thesis, as well as his other works. Um, again, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Reb Ari. It's a real privilege to be with you. Shimcha uh, Olech Lefanecha. I understand that I am in August company, but just being in your company is August enough for me, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, just a little bit about your early background and how you became interested in Rabbi Jacob Yaakov Emden. Um, as you mentioned, I was a graduate student at Harvard University and uh, was uh, finishing up my uh, coursework and my doctoral exams and uh, started to begin thinking about a topic for doctoral dissertation. Um, my original focus was on uh, what I would refer to as cultural transference. Uh, in other words, how does a culture transfer itself from one place to another? And what interested me is the fact that uh, in the uh, middle part of the Middle Ages, Jews lived in Western Europe, and slowly they began to be expelled from England in 1290, from France uh, throughout the 14th century, and then the Rhineland in the 15th century. By the time we come to the 16th century, Ashkenazi Jews are living in Poland, and at the end of the 15th century, they get expelled from Spain and they move into the Ottoman Empire. And so they transfer their culture. Their culture is moved from Western Europe to Eastern Europe or to the Ottoman Empire in the case of Sephardim. So what's the phenomenology of culture transference? How does a culture transfer itself from one place to another? What is it put into the suitcase? What does it leave behind? What is at the top of the suitcase so it comes out immediately when they arrive in their new location, what's all the way at the bottom. It takes 100 years for it to show up. How does that work? And I was fascinated by that, and my touch point was the city of Prague. Prague was a way station from west uh, to east, and I was zeroing in on uh, on Prague. Um, and I uh, realized that uh, I really needed to know Czech in order to do the kind of work that I wanted to do, and that was going to derail me. Uh, I'm a yeshiva bacher. You know, I had to nebuch, I had to know French and German to get past my doctoral exams. Um, in uh, my department at Harvard, in the recent department, we had a choice of Akkadian, Ugaritic, Sumerian, Hebrew, 
or Aramaic. We had to choose two out of the five. And I would imagine that you and your audience knows which two out of the five uh, I chose. And to give you a hint, they were not Akkadian, Sumerian, and Ugaritic. Um, and so when it came to Czech, this was a big hill for me to climb and uh, ultimately ended up not working on that, regretfully. Um, in the interim, um, I needed money. Uh, I was a graduate student. I was a rabbi in a small town. I was had a baby. Baruch Hashem, I had two children. I needed to make some extra dollars. So I picked up uh, a project that a friend was doing that he no longer was able to continue to do. That is to translate Megillat Sefer, Rabbi Yaakov Emden's autobiography, into English. And I uh, got a contract with Yale University Press, uh, which uh, parenthetically I still have, uh, a contract with Yale University Press to translate it into English. And I started working on Rabbi Yaakov Emden on the side to pick up a few extra dollars. Uh, They were going to give me $2,000. Uh, if I would have it done within two years, that was Kol Hoin Da Alma. That was a massive amount of money for me. Um, and even though it took a lot of time, but I, I did it because I needed to make money. When I uh, uh, rejected or left the choice of doctoral dissertation, I said to myself, "No, Mahalchen and Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, you're already working on Rabbi Yaakov Emdin. Why don't you shift and make that the focus? So I sort of backed into my interest in Rabbi Yaakov Emden, although I must say that having become interested, I remain mesmerized and uh, very much challenged by and uh, really uh, excited by the complexity of and the genius, uh, the godless of, uh, of uh, Rabbi Jacob Emden. Uh, next week, Amir Hashem. Um, I hope to send off to uh, the printer. Uh, I have a contract with Merkaz Shazar in Yerushalayim to do a Hebrew edition of the uh, Megillat Sefer, which is my current uh, academic project, which is now coming to an end. So I started working on this uh, 42 years ago. The Gematria Vidibarta Bam. Bam is the Gematria 42. I consider it to be a school of Arichas Yamin, uh, but it is now coming to an end. That was, you asked me about the beginning. That was the beginning. Now, Mahal Vimazuk by the Oishbayan, by the end of Olenu. And, uh, this, I hope and I believe will conclude my academic focus. I've written many articles on Rabbi Yaakov Emden over the years, but, you know, it's time, uh, and I think I'm going to wrap it up. Just to set the scene, um, the time frame that we're talking about and the early influences that shaped Rabbi Jacob Yaakov Emden. Yaakov Emden was born, actually we're not 100% sure whether it's 1697 or 1698. Uh, he's born into a very formidable rabbinic household. Uh, the Tata Givena Godelby Israel, the Zayde Givena Godelby Israel. I'm assuming that your audience understands Yiddish. Is that the kind of audience it's, that it's, it's fine? If not, they'll go to Harvard. I think Yiddish is one of the. I think Yiddish, right? That, yeah, that, that's also an option. But I'll translate in case not everyone understands it. I will say it in the language that I'm comfortable in, and then we'll translate it into the other language that I'm comfortable in. So, um, Rabbi Yaakov Emden is is born into a very formidable uh, 
aristocratic, uh, learned rabbinic household. Uh, his father was Chacham Tzvi Ashkenazi, uh, who was a, a tremendous rabbinic scholar, and the bar none, most formidable influence on the life of Rabbi Yaakov Emden was his father. Um, his uh, father uh, raised him, uh, not the way Rabbi Yaakov Emden would have liked. Uh, he bemoans the fact that his uh, father was not there for him to learn with him. His father sent him to, to Cheder to learn with Malamdin, who he claims abused him. Um, but even though his father did not give him the attention that he had hoped for and always pined for for his entire life and missed, his father and his father's life circumstances, namely fighting against the Sabathian heresy, were paramount importance to him. Why did you mention that before the research that um, uh, you were currently concluding? Why did um, Rabbi Emden write a diary? And what role does that play in the research and authentic research that you did on your thesis? Well, to answer the second question first, if somebody's writing a biography, The Life and Times, or in my case, it's my thesis is entitled The Life and Works of Rabbi Jacob Emden, and he told you the story of his life, then clearly that's going to be a very important work for you to uh, to uh, access. Now, obviously, the question you have to ask yourself is, is there an Aegeus here? You know, is he, is he have an axe to grind? And is he presenting and telling certain stories, not necessarily because they're true fully? They're probably true partially. He's not, you didn't say I went to the grocery store when, every, when he never went to the grocery store. But is there a certain angle here that he's trying to push that you have to be sensitive to when assessing what he says for its historical uh, accuracy? And uh, clearly also important, and that's the first question that you asked, is why is he writing this? Uh, and that's an excellent question and a very important question. And the question is based on the assumption that why should he be writing this? You know, Gedolei Yisrael don't write autobiographies. Gedolei Yisrael write commentaries on, on, on the Gemara. They write Chedushin. Gedolei Yisrael write responses. They write Shailos Uchulis. Uh, Gedolei Yisrael Paskin Shilas. Gedolia Stroll don't sit back and tell the right the story of their life. Last I checked, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein didn't write an autobiography, and Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik didn't write an autobiography, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't write an autobiography, and uh, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who was recently nifted, didn't write an autobiography. We don't do this. The Chacham Tzvi didn't write an autobiography. You can count on half a hand, um, certainly by the 18th century, on, 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 a, on, on, uh, a half a finger or a tenth of a finger, people who did this. So the question is an important question. In fact, Bichlau, autobiography in pre-modern Jewish life is very rare. So you have Chaye Yehuda of Leona de Modena in the 17th century, more famous maybe is Glickel of Hamlin uh, in the 17th century, who happened to live exactly where Rabbi Yaakov Emden lived in, in Hamburg in Germany, uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 years later. Uh, so the whole uh, enterprise, the whole genre of autobiography is rare. And Kavachimer, Ben Benoishel Kavachimer, certainly so in the case of a rabbinic figure. Um, in the introduction to the work that I am now submitting, 
Um, I realized very early on when I started doing my translation that I mentioned uh, a moment ago that uh, there was something that was not quite 100% precise about the printed text. I was using the only printed version that was printed in Warsaw in 1897, and uh, that was the only uh, version of Miguel Sefer that was uh, publicly available. But I, I, I sensed at this, it's not, and then I called for the manuscript from the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and I began to compare, and I realized that, in fact, it's not 100%. And, in fact, it's a lot less than 100%. Sometimes they're sloppy. Sometimes there's actual outright uh, censorship uh, of all different levels. So I found myself every third or fourth or fifth footnote in my translation noting this translation is in accordance with the manuscript and not in accordance with the book. And so at some point I said to myself, you know, maybe you ought to first put out and publish the manuscript, then you'll have a text, and then you should have a yamim, you should live a long life, maybe you'll go back and you'll do the English translation and you won't have to say every fifth footnote. So that's how I got started with this. And I worked on the original text, and that's what took me decades to finally finish. I had Baruch Hashem many day jobs, and I wasn't able to work on this full time. So in my introduction to the work that I'm now finally concluding and submitting, I argue, and I already did this in an article that I wrote about 20 years ago, that Rabbi Yaakov Emden is writing this work, not because he gave the money, he wants to tell you the story of his life, but this is autobiography, what I call autobiography as defense, or autobiography as polemic. And I'm assuming at some point you want to get to the famous or infamous Emdenaichit's uh, controversy. Yaakov Emden was in a fight to the death, mamish to the death. He was in a fight for his life and what he perceived of as a fight for the Jewish people, for the Nitzchiyas of Klal Yisrael, for the eternity of the Jewish people, against someone who he felt was the arch enemy and the greatest danger possible for the future of the Jewish people. And he was attacked for that because he went after someone who was pretty much universally otherwise perceived of as the Gadol the Israel at that time. This is a generation of a lot of great, great, great Jews, a lot of great Jews. But Va'ila al-Kulam, the greatest, was probably, was certainly one of Rabbi Yonasan Eibschitz, who was one of the greatest rabbinic luminaries of the 18th century, Rabbi Emden called him an absolute heretic. He called him dirty words. He wanted to destroy him. And as a result, Rabbi Yaakov Emden was attacked for all kinds of reasons and to defend himself from the attacks that were leveled against him as a consequence of his attack on Rabbi Yonason Eichitz, that's why he wrote this book. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. I'm not a cantankerous person, per se. I'm following in the footsteps of my father. Let me tell you why I'm opposed to my chief rabbi, Rabbi Cheskel Katzenelenbogen, because he doesn't deserve respect. All of the charges that were leveled against him, he's jealous of Rabbi Yonason Eichitz. He wanted to be the rabbi after Rabbi Katzenelenbogen died, but Rabbi Yonason Eibschitz was chosen instead of him. So that's why he's going after Rabbi Yonason. No, I never wanted to be a rabbi. I was a rabbi in Emden for a couple of years, but I never really wanted to be. The whole book, if you see it through the lens of 
a defense of his position in the Emdenaipchis controversy. You understand exactly the focus of the book, the structure of the book, why he stresses this and understresses that, because the understressed part was not relevant to his. He starts writing this a year into the controversy. This is what precipitated it. This is what drove it. It's only at the end, after he spends his, he spent with his defense, that it turns into a diary. You refer to it as a diary. It becomes a diary. This year, this happened this year. There are a few diary entries uh, for the last five, six years. And then he stops writing in 1766. The book peters out. He died 10 years later. And uh, that's why this book is so important, needs to be assessed. We need to understand why he wrote it. What are the main scholarly works composed by Rabbi Emden? And, and how was he able to accomplish that, given the fact that he was an autodictat, that he didn't have any formal yeshiva background and training? Yeah, it's remarkable. Rabbi Yaakov Emden never went to yeshiva. Uh, when he was young, he was living in uh, Altuna in Hamburg, the city where he was born, where his father for a number of years served as uh, Ashkenazi chief rabbi. The Zayda, his mother's father, Rabbi Shulam Zalman Miralis, had served in that position. The Chachamsi married the chief's daughter, moved into town, helped the chief, helped his father-in-law at the end of his father-in-law's life, and he himself took over. And uh, until the age of 12, 11, 12, again, I told you I'm not exactly sure when he was born. Nobody is. I think 1698. Um, in the year 1710, his father moved to become the chief rabbi, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Amsterdam. There's no yeshiva going on there at all in Hamburg. So he learns uh, with Malamdim. He moves to Amsterdam. There's no real yeshiva in Amsterdam. His father's very busy, doesn't learn with him. And then uh, his father leaves Amsterdam. He gets into a colossal fight with the local community over a Sabatian issue, someone who he claimed was a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. He leaves. Yaakov then gets married at the age of around 17, never learned in yeshiva. And that's why he has some some shitas in his chuvis that are um, unusual. He's got a whole shita about Pilegesh, some of his piske halachat. I don't have time to go into the specifics, and it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Reflect someone who's not part of the Masora of who has the scaffolding of a of an of a clear cut tradition about how to approach Jewish law, how to approach uh, Jewish tradition. But yet being an autodidact and not having a formal uh, yeshiva education, I'm in awe. I, what can I tell you? I am in awe of someone who just churned it out. Turned out, you you asked what the, did he write? I'll ask what did he not write? He wrote on, you name it. He has a parish on the Chumash. He has a parish on Tanakh. He has a parish on the Mishnah. He has a commentary on the Gemara. He has notes on the margin of the Gemara. He has a commentary on the Siddur. He has 300 plus uh, responsa. He has uh, a half a dozen uh, tracts, uh, essays on different subjects. He published uh, six, seven uh, sermons that he gave, long sermons that he gave. And this is on top of about 10, 12 um, pamphlets and books. 
70, 80, 90, 100 page books that he wrote about Sabathianism and fighting against Sabathianism. He published in his lifetime some 35, 36 volumes, the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, on the tour. It's jaw-droppingly, unbelievably, incredibly astounding what his output was. And he had to make a living. So he was in real estate. He was a mayo. He did the import-export. He was, uh, he was, he was, he was a handler. And he writes often about how he was, uh, got the short end of the stick, Nebuch. And people took advantage of him. So I, 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 I mamish don't begin to understand when he was able to do that. And in addition, we have about uh, 90 books who, that were in his library. The British Library in uh, London has about 70 books that were in Rabbi Yaakov Emden's library. When he died, his daughter, Hannah, uh, yarshened him. She uh, inherited both manuscripts and books. In his books, he wrote in the margins. He he put the commas in. In his Shaskamara, which is in the in the in the uh, National Library in Yerushalayim, he, he puts commas. If there's a little chip chick at the end, so he'll write the hay in or the end mem in. He, I I I could to such an extent I don't even I can't imagine what he did on Shabbos. When he couldn't write, he learned with a pen in his hand. So all of these books, the books went to the British Library, the manuscripts went to the Bodleian. I, 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 I don't understand. That's part of what just floors me. Where did he have the time to put one sentence in front of another and produce what he did? And he's quoted. In rabbinic literature, it's not like he's some favorfin, a guy on the sidelines that he wrote uh, foolish stuff that nobody looks at. No, the Morak his parish, his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch and the tour, is all over the place in subsequent rabbinic literature. His commentary on the Siddur, Sheilis Yavitz, his responsa, they're quoted up and down. Not always do people agree with him, but so what? He's a player. I'm the spoil. I, I can't begin to... Imagine how he could have done this. And for the last 25 years of his life, he is focused, focused on destroying Sabathianism. Let's get, let's get to that then. Um, just, just by background, what was the impact of Shaftai Tzvi on world jury in 1665-1666 when he lived? Shaftai Tzvi uh, in... Um, September of 1665, if I recall correctly, the month, a fellow by the name of Nathan of Gaza, uh, who had a tremendous, uh, was tremendously impacted by Shabtai Tzvi, made an announcement that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. Uh, Shabtai Tzvi himself did not announce his messianic self, but uh, Nathan of Gaza did. And um, for whatever reason, it would take us a long time to unpack but it is worthy of analysis, and I invite your uh, audience uh, to read the two volumes in Hebrew, Shabtai uh, Tzvi by Gershon Shalom, or 1,000-page English translation, 1,000 pages including the footnotes, the bibliography, and the index. There's an English translation of that book by Professor Werblowski uh, of the Hebrew University. Um, for whatever reason, uh, this Messianic movement, unlike others that preceded it, took off like wildfire. 
there is a history of messianic movements throughout the medieval uh, Jewish life. Some um, Ashkenaz, Farad, some more, some less. So we have uh, two handfuls, uh, two dozen, less than two dozen, a little bit, po v'sham, here, eshtekala there, 50 people, 100 people. We have uh, evidence. But this time it exploded for whatever reason. So some used to suggest that it followed the Chmelnitsky massacres of 1648-1649. The Jewish world needs a pickup. The Jewish world is now devastated. Um, probably more likely Gershom Shalom suggests that it has to do with the spread of Lurianic uh, Kabbalah that had a whole mystical understanding of the origins of the world and how one is metaking the world and how one brings a redemption and a fulfillment to the world that was very influential. For whatever reason, this time it exploded. And very shortly thereafter, pretty much I'm going to put go out on a limb and say 97% of world Jewry, from London to Livorno, from Poland to Persia, signed on to the Shabbatian movement. And Mamish, Mamish believed. Not an imam in Bemuna Shalema, someday he's going to show up. But Atadua, here he is, and this is him. We have evidence from Hamburg, for example, of Jews, wealthy Jews, unloading their assets on the stock market, on the stock exchanges. This is in German newspapers that we have. I saw them with my own eyes when I did research in Hamburg. Jewish Messiah arrives and they dump all their assets. They get a nickel. They get a nickel for the dollar and they're, they're, they're ready to leave. And before, not just the poor, not just the oppressed, Kulam, Haidu, Vehimlichu, Vaamru. Everybody signed on. And then 18 months later, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire was destroyed about this uh, upheaval in his country and in his land and gave Shabtai Tzvi a choice of conversion to Islam or death. This was unacceptable to him. He called in Shabtai Tzvi and said, either you convert to Islam, he was a Muslim, we're living now in a Muslim world, or I'll kill you. And Shabtai Tzvi decided to convert to Islam. When Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, 18 months later, most of the Jews went into a tailspin of depression. Imagine for a second, you know, engage in a moment of historical empathy, and it's very hard, it's impossible. Imagine if you mamish believed Mashiach was here, you were all ready to go, and five on the Goyim, forget about the Goyim, tire and Dreher, I don't care about them, Mashiach is here. Mashiach, this is it. This is it. What's happening? It's right here. Mamish Mashiach is here. And then all of a sudden, whoops, the Mashiach becomes a Muslim. It devastated. Devastated. And Nebuch, these Jews who unloaded a nickel on a dollar, these fancy Gahibin, aristocratic Sephardim from Hamburg have to crawl back in humiliated, embarrassed, devastated. But they realized they made a mistake. Can't be. Can't be that the Messiah is a Muslim. Can't be. Mashiach is a Muslim. It's not Shaykh. 
However, there was a small minority of Jews who was so convinced that they were living in a messianic era that they could not possibly conclude that they made a mistake because we live, we, we, we know it. So they had to figure out ways how to theologically reinterpret the Messiah's conversion to Islam within the context of the journey of messianism. That it's not a contradiction. You could still be the Messiah and you could still be a Muslim. And God forbid that he really wants to be a Muslim, that he really is a Muslim, but he's faking it. He's faking it in order to go down into the avia Vaisatuma, to go into the depths, to be able to capture the sparks that were brought there inadvertently as part of the Lurianic vision of the creation of the world. What better way to bring about redemption is every mitzvah elevates a spark from the netherworld up to the world of God. But this way, the Mashiach can go in and scoop him up himself. And only the Mashiach could do it because only the Mashiach has the religious strength and capabilities to withstand the temptations of the depth. Akitzer, all kinds of post-conversion Sabatian theologies developed that took hold. And even though the vast majority of Jews, Nebuch, with their tails behind, uh, between their legs, crawled back in and said, Nebuch, we made a terrible mistake. There were some who continued, and there were those who maintained a Sabatian identity into the 18th century. At some point, certain ideologies that I must tell you I myself don't fully understand because they're too Kabbalistic for my brain, there's certain Shittas, Kabbalistic ideas that became identified with Sabatianism. So that by the time we come to the middle of the 18th century and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, one did not even have to believe that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah in order to be tainted with the brush of Sabatianism. Certain ideologies became so identified with Sabatianism that that alone was enough to have one uh, labeled a Sabatian. And uh, and uh, that was uh, primarily the issue.